Things have been pretty busy here around the house lately. With uh, I got a new album coming out, and Amy and I are doing everything we can to take care of all the things that need to be taken care of, and there's quite a few. But it's going to get even busier the second half of this year. I'll spend all of July overseas playing in England, Wales, and Switzerland. And I got a Tennessee gig, strange exotic land called Tennessee, just right before I take off. And then uh, there's another strange exotic place called Indiana that I get to go play, get to see my old friends in Indianapolis. I really hope you guys will come out to the shows. If you do, come up to me and let me know that you listen to this show. It's one of the... The best things about doing this show is when someone actually walks up and tells me that they listen to it. And I'm talking into a microphone right now that I don't usually get to see your faces. So if you come up to me at a show, I actually get to see the person. And it becomes a lot more personal for me at that point. So I hope I get to meet you guys and definitely say hi to me. And you can find out about all those gigs at OtisGibbs.com. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville and I have a dog sitting on the floor next to me and I have a cat in my lap. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is W.S. Holland. W.S. is a drummer. He's one of the architects of rock and roll. He was right there at the beginning. You can find out everything you need to know about W.S. at wsflukeholland.com. You know, I'm not real sure where to start. There's just so many things I could tell you about W.S. Holland. But I guess I'll start by saying W.S. played on Blue Suede Shoes and Matchbox with Carl Perkins. And he ended up becoming Johnny Cash's drummer. Played on quite a few hits like Folsom Prism, Ring of Fire, Sunday Morning Coming Down. And he's the only drummer that ever played with Johnny Cash. And he's the first person to play a full drum kit on the Grand Ole Opry. I contacted W.S.'s manager about a year ago wanting to get him on this show. And he said that he'd be happy to do it, but he lives in Jackson, Tennessee. I was waiting for a time when we might be able to meet up when he was in Nashville. And as time went by, it just never seemed to happen. And I really wanted to get the chance to chat with him and hear his stories. So I decided I would go ahead and just drive to Jackson from Nashville, which is about two hours. And W.S. was just the nicest, nicest man. He reminded me of my father in some ways, but he's just really kind and gracious And we sat down in his home in Jackson, Tennessee, and he shared a whole lot of stories about the birth of rock and roll. Here's W.S. Holland. First of all, let me say what an honor it is to be here with you. And I feel like I feel really fortunate just to be somebody that people like you no, like W.S. Holland, who sat on a drum stool, this is my 60th year, and behind all the big stars, and 
I didn't figure anybody even knew I exist. So this is a pleasure for me. Well, it's a pleasure for me. You're yeah. a legend. Now, I guess maybe it's kind of a fluke thing because my nickname is Fluke, as you know, W.S. Fluke Holland. The weird thing about all of it, now that it's history, I look back at it, I never thought a lot about it while it was happening. But it was 1954. I was just out of high school at Bemis, Tennessee, a little town south of Jackson here, J.B. Young High. I'd been out of school about a year, and, and I was working with an air conditioning company. Air conditioning was just beginning to happen. So I said, man, that's what I'll do the rest of my life. And S.M. Lawrence Company, air conditioning company, and I had worked there every summer vacation during my high school years. And then at the end, end of the four years, I kept working there. And I never thought about being in the, in the music business at all. It never crossed my mind. I was more mechanically minded because that's one of the things I did with Lawrence Coal Company is work on their old trucks and and my dad was a mechanic. So I and where I went to school, at every place I went to school from my first grade till the end of high school, didn't have a band. And I just never thought about playing music at all. It never crossed my mind. The weird thing about it all, or weird or whatever, is Carl Perkins and the Perkins family, his two brothers and the family, lived in the same little town that I did, Bemis, Tennessee. And I met them. One reason, one way I met them, I met Clayton first, his younger brother. It was a kind of a little restaurant over in the part of town where they lived, and I just stopped by there some and, and met them. And, and uh, it was Carl and his two brothers, and they had a little band. They was playing around over the place, and... I look back at it now, I don't really know why I started going, but I, I, I'd i met them, and, and we liked each other, I think, and, and I would uh, go to some of the clubs they were playing. Now when I'm doing this, I, I kind of make up a little thing. I said, the only reason I could think of that I'd be going to those clubs, it might be some girl there that wasn't too particular. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so, but for some reason, I still don't know why, on some of the up-tempo songs they were playing. Carl, they did mostly Hank Williams songs back then. For some reason, I would walk out beside Clayton, the bass player, beside the upright bass, and just keep time on the side of the bass. Like, for example, uh, Hank Williams, Hey, Good Looking, on the, on the, Hey, hey, good looking, what you got cooking? I would do that one night. I was still around when they were they got through, and we was down at a club called a Hilltop Inn down south of Jackson, and Carl just out of the clear blue sky, he said, "W.S. We got an appointment to meet Sam Phillips next Thursday. Borrow some drums and go with us." And I said, "Borrow some drums, <laughs> man? What would I do if I had a drum? I don't, I can't play drums." He said, you keep time on that bass like that, you could play drums. Now, this was on a Saturday night. Again, I'll say for some reason a dozen times probably because it's all a mystery to me. But I found a guy here that had some drums. I'd heard he, he, a boy worked at an amusement company, and I find him, and I'd, his name was Slick Glisson. I said, Slick, I, need, I want to borrow your drums Thursday. And I told him why. And he said, well, WS, you can't play. 
I said, well, but if you'll let me borrow your drums, I'll be playing by Thursday. He let me have them. I went out to my mom's house, set them down there. I never had seen a drum set up before. So I set the hi-hat over on the right side. If you'll notice, every drummer you'll see, the hi-hat will be over here on the left side and like a snare drum here, and he's playing like this, you know. This hand is, his left hand is blocked if he wants to do this. But I didn't know that I was setting them up backwards. So I did. Fooled around for a while. Thursday, we got in my car, drove over to Memphis, unloaded, set up in the middle of the floor over there like you still do. Started singing a song that Carl had wrote about Movie Mag was the name of it. <clears throat> and it... <laughs> I think about it now, a song like, like that to get a record deal. It was about a boy taking his girlfriend named Maggie to the movie on a horse named Becky. He'd climb up on old Becky's back and just ride to the picture show. But Sam Phillips liked what he heard that day, and we got a recording contract. On the way back, we was kidding about it. Man, anybody never played before, played on a record and got a recording contract. We went back later in uh, late 55, I think, and recorded Blue Suede Shoes, which was our third release. And during all of 55, we started touring because what happened back then, you could go into Sun Studio, make a record, take it up to Dewey Phillips' Red Hot and Blue radio show, and he'd play it a couple of times. Man, you, you could played the National Guard Armory anywhere in 75-mile radius of Memphis and fill it up on Saturday night. But in 55, here's when the rest of the Sun Group came. In the middle of 54, Elvis, Scott, and Bill played. At the end of 54, Carl, his rude brothers, and I. Then in 55, here come Johnny Cash, Roy Alberson, Billy Riley. A big group of Sun people started, and Sam... And Bob Neal, a disc jockey, started a booking agent called Stars Incorporated, booking the Sun Artist. So that's where we all played together starting in 1955. Uh, fact of business, if you look over here on this uh, poster, there's a poster over there of John and Elvis and Carl in 1956 playing a show in Amory, Mississippi at the National Guard Armory, and the tickets is $1.25. So <laughs> when I look at that, I tell people, I said, now I know why there wasn't any money for the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> in 1956, we was back in the studio to record the release after Blue Suede Shoes. And it was a matchbox. Sort of. Now, Carl, his two brothers and I, and Sam had hired Jerry Lee Lewis to play piano. He was a piano player hanging around, and he hired him to play piano. And in the middle of the session, John and Elvis just dropped by. They heard we were in town, and we'd met each other the year before and played a, quite a few shows together, and they just dropped by to say hello. Nobody thought anything about it that night. Of course, when they dropped by, it just stopped, and it turned into a jam session. Elvis sat down on the piano and just 
started singing some things. Like it happened a lot of times later in the sixties and seventies at, at the studio in Nashville, Columbia. That's what happened. People drive by, but <clears throat> that one became really famous later after it became history. But kind of made Jerry Lee a little bit mad. Elvis told him to get up. Let me show you a few hot licks on the piano. <laughs> <clears throat> but nobody thought anything about it that night. There's two things that happened that's that hadn't happened. We wouldn't be talking about it. Jack Clement was the engineer. He didn't think anything about it when it when they when the jam session started. He just turned the machines on, went next door to the Taylor Cafe to get him a sandwich. And just let it run, and and really the quality of anything is not all that good. Nobody, I didn't know, or nobody else knew what they was going to do next. But that happened, and Sam did think to call a photographer, and made the famous picture you see of the boys. And I kind of fussed at Sam later when it became really a big deal and an important history. I said, Sam, man, if you'd have been smartest people thought you were long about then, you'd have had that photographer to pan over about three feet. I would have been it, then it would have been famous. And it, <laughs> and it didn't make him mad. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but what what happened to it later? Of course, later when the, when the boys did become big stars, people ask me now, like doing an interview like we're doing, every once in a while they'll say, man, what did it feel like to you to be in the studio with all those big stars? And and a lot of people don't understand, and, and I tell them, I say, hey, I wasn't in the studio with any big stars. The only thing I had on my mind that night was Sam had started having to keep time and pay Union Scale, and Union Scale that night was $11. So I was, <laughs> I, I was just concerned about my $11. Of all the people that I worked with all through the years, a lot of kind of wild and strange and unique. Jerry Lee was, he was right at the top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kid people now. <clears throat> I went to uh, Jerry Lee's uh, 75th birthday over in Memphis, had a big party, and, and I was lucky enough to be invited. And I tell people, Jerry was really good. He seemed to have a big time. But he, he didn't know it till somebody told him the next day. So that, <laughs> but but he was he he was so talented, and, and still is. Uh, I, a lot of times I, I say if Jerry Lee probably had a maybe backed off of being whatever I don't know you call it maybe a little bit too wild or might have been as good or a bigger deal. I don't know. He didn't need to be any bigger deal, but. A couple of weird things that happened. One right here in Jackson, Tennessee. He played a show over here. And he, he come over here in a little private airplane. And he, he picked him up at the airport. A, a fellow named, I, I think the promoter's name was Shelton. Anyway, they sent a car to get pick him up at the airport to carry him to the Coliseum. And it was Chevrolet car. And Jerry, <laughs> he, he said, the killer don't ride in no Chevrolet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so 
little town like Jackson, no limousines. The only limousines in this town was uh, Smith's Funeral Home. Had a couple of limousines. <laughs> so they called, and, and good good friends of mine, Jerry and Jack Smith, and his, their dad owned the funeral home, and they got one of their limousines to go get him. <laughs> now, the killer don't ride in no Chevrolet. And, and another time, we was recording back at Sun, the CD where all the guys were on, and, and I was standing out in front of Sun, and Jerry walked up, down the sidewalk and had a watch. I said, Jerry, man, that's a pretty watch. He just took it off his arm and throwed it to me. And, and I get to think about it, it's several things. One day he told me, he said, I got a racehorse I want to give you. And I lived out in, in the country here now on a little 100-acre place. We called it a little farm, but it's a place. Then. But we had some horses and, and, and a few cows. And so, so I go down to get it. He was telling me how great it was. And Joyce and me take off down to his house down south of Memphis, and he wasn't home. But I like to have never got that horse. It was wild as any horse that ever roamed the, <laughs> the hills. And finally, finally got that horse in the trailer and started to pull out and stopped. And Joe said, what do you stop for? I said, watch me. And I go open the door. And get that. Finally, made the horse get out of the trailer, shut the door, and she said, "What do you do that for?" I said, "Man, that horse is too wild." And, and I kidded Jerry so many years later. Give me a, one of the finest race horses in the world, and so wild, I like to kill myself and the horse. Release it. He would. He was just that type of guy. And uh, now I'm gonna. I, I, I probably can't get him to do it, but we're having. They are having a 60-year anniversary with me in uh, August the 16th at the, here in Jackson. And I'm going to try to get him to come over and see if he'll come over and do a sign because he, he's the only one left that I started with back then. So maybe he will. Would you have imagined back then that he might be one of the last ones standing? I would imagine back then and a long time since back then, he'd be the first one to not be standing. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and all at once it was 1960. Time passed so fast and, and I was going to retire. My first time to retire in 1960. I'd been in the business six years. Figured I'd done all I would ever do. Played on the... Blue Suede Shoes, first record to go to number one in all the charts, and kind of the beginning of rock and roll, really. And I'd met Joyce, my wife, and I was driving around. I'd spent all my money on uh, Carl Clayton and JB, spent all their money. I'd spent all my money on uh, cars and speedboats. I'd drive around Jackson here with a big, long Cadillac, three payments behind. I met Joyce. She had a good job, had a house paid for, had a car paid for, and she finally talked me into marrying her. And in 1960, we got married, and I'd line, had me a job lined up. I was going to work for the city. <clears throat> friend of mine was an engineer for the city, and, and he wanted me to come help him. I didn't realize at the time that my job would be going out in the 
field driving stakes in the ground, but that would have been okay. But I got a call from Johnny Cash. He said, WS, I got an engagement up in New York and Atlantic City. Go with me for those two weeks. And I first told him, I said, John, I can't go. I've already got a, a job lined up. But I said, let me check. So I called a boy. boy's name was Jerry Mullen. And I told him, I said, man, I'd like to wait a couple of weeks and go with John and the boys. He said, go ahead. So I did. Went first week was at a club up in the <clears throat> New York. The next week was in Atlantic City to Steel Pier, that theater there. And about middle of the week in Atlantic City, John said, man, I really like what's going on here. I said, I'd like you to play with me occasionally. And I said, John. I am retired from the music business. I'm getting, have gotten married, and I'm going to get a real job, so I'll have a payday every Friday. I can't just work occasionally. He said, well, when I say occasionally, said, I'm, I'm going to try to book like 10, 15 days a month, maybe 80 or $100, 100 days a year. I'd like for you to work with me as long as I'm in the business from now on. I said, that sounds like a regular job. He said, it'd be as regular as I can make it. I called Joyce that night, told her to give Jerry a call and tell him I've decided to stay in the music business. So that's another thing that kind of a lot of people kind of uh, think was kind of a flute deal. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of Chris Christopherson memories I have. uh, When we were recording at... uh, son, when we first started, uh, Chris was working there. Of course, you've probably heard this story. He was a janitor there because he was writing songs, and they didn't like it for him to, to try to uh, pitch songs and all. Of course, you heard the helicopter story, I'm sure. But one of, the, one of my greatest memories is uh, one of the big festivals up, up in the north part of the world. We was on together, and I was fortunate enough to to play to back him up, and every once in a while I see him now, he'll he'll say, "Man, what an honor it was to, to look back here and see you playing behind me." In fact, man, we was together. It's been a pretty good while ago now. Uh, Jack Clement Day that we had downtown, and he he came in for that, and uh, I worked with him there. He was just another one of the, the super nice guys. And a Willie Nelson story that I tell, talking about how nice all the big stars are. The day before Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, we'd played a show in a little town out of Dallas. I think it was Temple or Tyler. And Willie was on the show. He didn't have a band or anything. And I backed him up. And after the show... He said, W.S., man, you did a good job. I know how hard it is to play with me. Of course, you know. (laughs) And and so every time I see him now, I said, do you remember those compliments you gave me back then? He said, yeah, I never will forget it. That's the type of situation that I've been in all of my life. And uh, I'm just really thankful to be able to to be doing something that that all those people respect and uh, and good friends for.
I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank W.S. Holland for inviting me into his home in Jackson, Tennessee. I want everybody to be sure and tune in next week for part two of our conversation. You can find out everything you need to know about W.S. at wsholland.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.